Hello listeners, Josh Evans here. This is where I would normally welcome you to the show, but I'm going to start this week with a little bit of a disclaimer. We had some audio issues this week, and in some places the audio sounds pretty bad, which is actually classic podcasting for you. This show operates on a shoestring budget, which means all of the audio engineering I'm doing myself, and I'm not exactly what you would call a pro. But I was debating whether or not to put this show out. In some places, it is pretty rough. So if you're an audiophile, you might want to skip this one. But if you come to this show for interesting conversations, then this is going to be right up your alley. The conversation that I had with Nick is really unlike anything we've ever had before. It was very deep and, in my opinion, extremely fascinating. I thought it was too good to just put in the vault. So if you can put up with a little bit of technical difficulty, then... Sit back, enjoy the show. I think you're going to love it. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Nick Underwood. <laughs> on today's episode, I discuss the bizarre and unlikely direction evolution has taken on this planet and the inhuman abilities that have developed in creatures like the Hydra Vulgaris, a freshwater polyp with an enviable superpower. Then Nick does what he does by taking us down the most cerebral path the show has ever walked. We ponder some of life's most unanswerable questions. Things like, what is the self? Can we survive ourselves? And what is the meaning of life? These questions spawn from Nick's unlikely content piece, the accumulated thoughts of one man's prolific podcast guestery. Today, we are discussing AI researcher and human think master, Yosha Bach. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims, let their favorite content be coming yours it's the content clearing house content clearing house and it starts right now nick josh how are you uh well like uh probably i guess the last uh couple catch-ups we've just been traveling a lot around colorado we've hit denver now we ran from a storm uh that was coming through mountains while we were up there and we kind of hightailed it to Colorado Springs where we spent the night next to one of the new wind tunnels they're building, uh, one of the new iFly tunnels. It was kind of neat to see it in its uh, uh, skeletal state. So all you could really see is the, the tunnel, the, the building wasn't wrapped around it yet. So that was pretty cool. Looks a lot like the uh, Denver tunnel, actually, since that is essentially a skeletonized wind tunnel. doesn't have any of the fancy like upstairs conference rooms or anything. It's just like the recirculating towers on our tunnel are just open air. You know, you can look, see right. right through the building. And that's what the skeletonized tunnels look like. See the recirculating towers. Yep. That was cool. And then we, uh, yeah, we made it up to Denver. We camped in a uh, random person's driveway for five days uh, using a service called Boondockers Welcome. So it's a, it's a thing where you actually, anybody can go on and, and say, hey, uh, I got this spot and I don't mind if somebody comes and hangs out for a little bit. And there was really just one spot in Denver. And it ended up being this really cool, um, I guess, set of roommates. Uh, they forgot they were having a party, or they forgot to mention they were having a party the day we arrived, literally three feet out of our window. And uh, we uh, kind of did our thing for a little bit. Then we joined them and had like probably one of the best times we've had in a long time at a party. Um, so that that was actually pretty awesome. They were really cool people. And uh, uh, saw some other friends. And hey, came by your house yesterday with a whole bunch of people yeah, and a whole bunch did. of puppies. Yeah, that was real fun, man. A little uh, impromptu get-together. And yeah, we had five dogs here that we somehow 
tricked into sitting still for a photo together, which was, that was quite the accomplishment because, man, those dogs, they were not into sitting next to each other for very long. They wanted to get up and go. Yeah, that was uh, surprising. I don't know uh, how they did it. I should have shared the video. I actually took a video of everyone else trying the video of them uh, while they were all saying, <laughs> sit, stay, 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 and like a whole chorus of sits and stays and good boys. Uh, I'll share that later. In the in the photo, we got all the dogs sitting next to each other, all in front of the fireplace, and in the uh, in the glass front of the fireplace, you can see all of the dog owners reflected, like whatever, holding up treats and like holding their hands out. Everybody was like working as hard as they could to get the dogs to sit there. And I got maybe like three shots before the entire thing collapsed. We did it, man. That yeah. was a yeah. that was a that was a photo victory right there. Pulled it off. What about you? Uh, man, I've just been doing what I do, flying in the wind tunnel, raising kids. Mm. Uh, actually, next weekend, though, my wife and I are going scuba diving in the Denver Aquarium, which we have done once before. What? Yeah, it's uh, if you've ever been to the Denver Aquarium, there's a uh, there's like a tube room that you walk through and you're basically, you know, like in the tube that goes under the water. And that's yeah. the that's the room you scuba dive in. It was actually when we went before, it was the first time we'd ever scuba dive before. And now we've been like four times total but uh it, it was really cool they gave us like a they gave us like a quick uh patty lesson and then we did like breathing training and recovering of the boc and then uh or is that what it's called boc what's the breather called are you a scuba diver B- I, uh, boc I is a skydiving term fully certified as of like 15 or 20 years ago i haven't been on a dive in like 15 or 20 years that sounds yeah yeah, we'll call it BOC. Something uh, the breathing apparatus. Yeah, but it was cool. Like we get to swim around, and there's uh, in that in that one aquarium, there's like these underwater arches and stuff, and you could swim through there. And they have they had a 400 pound grouper. They had nurse sharks. There were eels in there, and you can also swim in the shark tank at the Denver Aquarium, but. You could literally not pay me enough money to do that. There is what? no way I would get in that tank. You know what? Uh, that reminds me of something I saw. Uh, who's the current governor? Governor? Governor of <laughs> Colorado? Polis. Is that? Is it? Yeah, he put out a tweet a couple of days ago, um, claiming well, not claiming, just uh, reveling in the fact that Denver or Colorado is tied for the last place of number of shark, of shark bites in the country. As in, <laughs> yeah, as I in, imagine as it'd in, be hard to get bit they here. Get zero. I wonder who it's um, tied with, because there are a lot of landlocked well, think, states. Yeah, I think that was the joke. I guess um, that you you know tied with forty eight other states or something. Um, <laughs> I don't nice. know how many. Yeah, I don't know how many get shark attacks. Actually, the place I spend most of my time surfing uh, in Florida uh, is called New Smyrna Beach. That's where my mom is. Um, is known as the shark bite capital of the world. Ooh, um, yikes! The, the only thing is though, there they are. Uh, they're called. Uh, well, they call them spinners down there because you see them. They jump out of the water and spin when they're like trying to attack fish from below. But they're only like three or four feet long. So like every bite's literally like a couple stitches. Sometimes the people don't even like leave surfing. They just go back in the water. Um, that's but, crazy. Like per capita number of bites. That's the place. Well, if you uh, listen to the monster movie triple feature that I did a while back, you'll know that how terrified I am of being eaten. I feel like I'm way too important to be food, 
And so <laughs> the concept of some animal eating me, that's like, seems like the most horrific way to die. And I think if a little spinner bit me, I would just be pissed really. It's just like, man, yeah. did you not listen to I, the episode spinner? You know that I'm too important <laughs> to be your snack. No, I, I agree with you on that. I, uh, I have always had a pretty solid fear of uh, big cats, bears, and sharks. However, I lived on a sailboat for a while, and I spent enough time swimming around sharks or having them come near me that I guess like I therapied therapy my way out of that and cleared that one up. Interesting. Um, bears, I'm working on. Uh, I've seen a couple in the wild now, and I didn't didn't run screaming, uh, which would probably be the worst thing to do. But uh, <laughs> that's like saying, "Hey, come eat me." Yeah, I am still healthily terrified of big cats. I, I don't spend a lot of time in lion or tiger country, but I guess, uh, you know, there are mountain lions out here that could be just waiting around the next corner to rip my face off. And those, I don't want to be a part of that. Those are all the monsters of our planet. And actually, yeah. it kind of feeds in nice to our off top. I put together, it's just kind of a short little off top, but I thought it was really interesting. Um, have you ever heard of, well, I guess first, are you, how fascinated are you by the bizarre ways that life develops on this planet? Like the bizarre creatures that develop specifically maybe like in the ocean or in the, uh, in the water. Is that something that uh, you think pretty, about a lot? Yeah. No, uh, it, it fits into kind of the stuff I was talking about last, uh, last episode with the complex system stuff. It's, it's the, the, the neat and kind of edge cases things that emerge out of systems like life that can be the most interesting. And, uh, yeah, there's some really cool freaky stuff in the ocean. I know that. Have you ever heard of the Hydra vulgaris? Uh, I tried that once in college, but I did not like it. No, I don't <laughs> oh, know. I have no experimentally. idea. Experimentally. <laughs> well, the, uh, the Hydra vulgaris, it's this little, it's a freshwater creature, but still most of the, the most bizarre things I think, come out of the water on this planet but uh it's a little freshwater squid looking creature they're also known as polyps but they're about uh, 20 to 30 millimeters long about one inchish long for all the american dinguses like me out there mm-hmm. but it has this uh this little tubular body it's closed at one end and on the other end it has a dual purpose mouth that's surrounded by anywhere from four to 25 tentacles and the tentacles have stinging cells but they're much too weak to affect humans so if you've ever swam in freshwater, you've probably accidentally swallowed hundreds of these creepy, amazing little monsters. Whoa. But the, uh, the dual purpose mouth is used for both eating and shitting. And when you hear about the awesome superpower this creature has, you'll have to ask yourself if the trade-off for this superpower was that I had to poop through the same hole where I taste things, would mm-hmm. I sign up? Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind. Uh, so that the Hydra vulgaris, it's named after the Hydra from Greek mythology, and it has the unique qualifier of having biological immortality. So they don't, uh, these creatures, they don't experience senescence or biological aging. That's some, that's a term I just learned. So they're often used as model organisms in, uh, scientific studies. You know, they're an organism used to explore biological phenomenon and half of up to half of the cells in the hydra's bodies are made up of stem cells which of course everyone knows there's the, the generic cells that can essentially become anything in the body huh. now we 
stupid humans with all of our abilities only have a small number of stem cells in our bodies. And uh, because of the high number of stem cells in the hydra, they have the ability to regrow any part of their body. So if they lose a tentacle, the stem cells basically go into tentacle mode and regrow it. Or if they get cut in half, the two halves will heal into two separate hydras. And that, I mean, that's such a, such an insane and bizarre process for a creature on this planet. That's a, that's really cool. Um, how do they, do they also reproduce? Do you know if they reproduce other ways or is it just enough of them getting cut in half to, you know, keep the population going? I didn't, uh, I didn't really, in, I've researched a lot about these. I didn't really find anything about their reproductive cycle. But uh, I would like to imagine that they just have to be cleaved in two for more of them <laughs> to be born. That would be so much more interesting than if they had some sort of, I don't know, some sort of weird mating ritual. But I was uh, going to say, that may not seem, at first it didn't seem like a great evolutionary advantage to, to reproduce that way. But actually, I think it is would be sort of a uh, a great way or evolution, uh, evolutionary advantage. Because, yeah, the world's a pretty hostile place, especially for something that size. And if, if every time you got, uh, damaged, just more of you are created. I don't, I don't know of a better way to, uh, to repopulate and, and big numbers than that. But really? Yeah. That, that does seem like it'd be almost impossible to beat. And it would definitely fit with the Hydra theme. I mean, that's like why the mm. Hydra in Greek, Greek mythology was so hard to defeat because every time you lopped off one of its heads, two more would grow back. And so that, that's a, I mean, that's an, ability of essentially a super villain from you know ancient times and uh that would be almost impossible to defeat if they were you know if they were really competing with larger organisms for nutrients which it doesn't really seem like they are you know they're yeah most little tiny creatures like that are just kind of like skimming food off this you know pollen or whatever falls into water not like they're like fighting with fish for food or anything, but yes, eventually that would be like the kind of thing where it'd be like the, uh, the gray goo theory with nanobots where eventually they would just right. cover the entire planet. <laughs> just like hydro vulgaris everywhere. You know, they could just be a mutation or two away from that. Maybe we need to add that to the list of existential threats. Uh, Maybe this is some. Maybe we need to start informing the public about this. I'm now it's <laughs> now it's freaking lions, tigers, bears, sharks, and hydrovolgaris. Oh my, for me exactly. And I mean, they're they're really interesting. Like scientists are studying the anti aging properties of the hydra in hopes that one day it'll be applicable to humans, which yeah. seems like a long shot. But I'm also that's like superhero story fodder. That's like lizard or whatever the. What's the creature from Spider-Man? The character, the the lizard. I think he. I think it might just be his name. Where he was trying to. Uh, he was like a scientist trying to regrow his lost arm. And he ends up splicing his DNA with a, you know, with a salamander or something, and becomes like a human-sized monster. So that's definitely something. I. I mean, it's also Deadpool. I mean, these things are like, oh, yeah. tiny freshwater Deadpool squid. But it also reminds me of. Have you seen the movie Life with Jake Gyllenhaal? No, I don't think so. It's a really awesome movie. So they're in space, and the, this uh, this creature, it's called Calvin. It comes in from, uh, I think, from Mars on a probe. And it starts off as a little 
microscopic, simple creature, but as it consumes food, it grows and its structure becomes more complicated. And the really interesting thing about the, the creature design in that movie is that every cell in its body is universal. So every cell is a muscle, a, d- a digestive cell, an eye. So when it gets hurt, it can just rearrange its body and it never start, stops growing. And I really love a well-thought-out creature design. And the whole Hydra Vulgaris seems like a real-world analog for something like Calvin, maybe a little less horrifying because it's so small. Mm-hmm. And uh, other than maybe being accidentally, accidentally dissolved in your stomach acid after you swallowed millions of them in a gulp of fresh water while swimming, they do seem almost impossible to kill. So we got to go back to my original question. Uh-huh. Would you yeah. accept pooping from your taste hole for a shot at immortality? Um, yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I've been, Bold eat, stance. I've, been, I've been eating food for 41 years now. I feel like I've tasted just about everything there is to taste. And no, I think I was thinking about that the wrong way. I was thinking I don't have to taste that anymore, but really I have to taste really bad stuff. <laughs> yes. uh, let me think about tasting this again. the worst. You know what? So you're going with no or yes? I, I know I'm waffling here a little bit. Waffles. Uh, no, uh, final answer, yeah. I, I would take it, and I would just try to eat less. Just the bare minimum to get away with still living? Yeah. Actually, do you do you remember the South Park episode where they, uh, if you are a South Park fan, they, uh, they, uh, Intero retro digestion, I think is what they called it. They decided that they would poop out their mouths instead of their butts for some reason, and I don't oh, remember man. the whole plot. You, you, did you see that? No, man. I feel like uh, South Park is like a big, uh, it's a big blind spot for me, which is kind of weird because oh, I know it's like heralded as like one of the greatest comedy creations of all time, but I don't know. For some reason, I never really got into it. And it's fair. There's a lot of stuff out there. You can't do it all. I've also had Rick and Morty uh, suggested to me by several people, and I still haven't really gotten into that either. But I feel like at some point, South Park and Rick and Morty are things I need to just go back and just consume everything they've ever created. Yeah, I'll second the uh, the Rick and Morty. Um, maybe shoot for that one first, since it doesn't have 30 seasons or whatever South Park has now. But Totally. Um, the first season of Rick and Morty, if I'm thinking of it right, I think it was a lot like kind of the first Simpsons, the first season of the Simpsons, Simpsons where it was uh, not as polished. Um, or maybe I might even be thinking of some stuff earlier than their, their original release that I saw. Um, kind of like how the Simpsons were on uh, the Tracy Ullman show start. Yeah. But as the seasons progress, they get bolder and more, I think, confident with their uh, their wild storylines. And it, it's, it's really neat, especially for nerds like us. It's really nerdy. Yeah, I've heard, I've had several people tell me Brett was one of them with Rick and Morty that the first minimum, like the first two or three episodes, are like kind of they're not really indicative of the rest of the series, and that you can mm-hmm. almost like skip the first few, and then once it gets rolling, it's it just never lets up. It just keeps getting better and better. So I got to do it. It's on Hulu. I should just pull the trigger and go for it. And just dive into Rick and Morty because so many people whose opinions I respect have been, have told me that Rick and Morty is, it's like quintessential. Yeah, I agree. You could probably knock it out in a solid weekend. Yeah. It's what three seasons, right? Or four seasons yeah, now, three or four. Yeah. Maybe fourth now. 
Nice. Well, maybe I'll check that out. I don't know if I would be with you on this whole immortality thing. I'm not such a, I'm not super into food per se, but I don't know if I would be able to live with myself if I had like the, the constant uh, taste of my own feces in my mouth. I don't know if I'd want to be immortal if that was the, uh, if that was the trade off, but you never know until you try. So what I suggest, <laughs> Nick, is that you, yeah. Do a little bit of personal research and get back to me and you let me know if it would be worth it. What do you think? I mean, as a contentologist, I don't know if I can, you know, turn down a request from <laughs> the one of the chief contentologists like that and still How bad do you want to be on my, this show? Yeah. So uh yeah, let me uh check back in next week, see how that goes. That is some real intern shit I'm laying on you. But that is your that is your job this week. All right, so uh, Nick will do that, and then he will check back in next week. And in the meantime, what's on your content circuit, buddy? Well, um, I should have known you were going to ask me that since that's happened every episode, and I don't think I've really consumed anything content related aside from. You know, some of the stuff for the, the piece I'll be talking about today. Um, yeah, I think I wrapped up Squid Game before last episode, and that was it. That's what I was going to say. Uh, on your recommendation, I went and watched Squid Game, and it took me about, I don't know, how many hours is it? It's about six hours long or nine hours long, so it took me maybe 12 hours total to watch the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I just like yeah. – just completely consumed it and you were right it is one of the most josh things that i've ever seen it's foreign language it's got subtitles it's a death game which i think is a totally fascinating concept and man it is i can see why it's the most popular show that netflix has ever released and it also makes me feel a little bit better about my tastes in content because i always thought yeah. i was like into like twisted stuff, but apparently the whole world is into that kind of thing. It's just really fascinating the, the story behind it and the, uh, like the inner personal relationships that develop. It's all so well done. And I, I also saw that I think squid game was created a while ago, like several years ago. And it just now got its American release. Oh, which really? I, yeah, I didn't see that. Yeah. Which is kind of surprising. Cause that, that show seems so polished. It seems like, so now, you know, the, the, just like the design, the color choices, mm -hmm. all of it is just super hip. And that is, man, it's so great. Yeah. I mean, it was quality all around. I mean, for being such a messed up thing or, you know, having some seriously diabolical shit in it, it was, I mean, it, as far as production value and cinematography and writing and character development and just the emotion that they can pull out of that, it was, uh, I don't. I I I, I couldn't give them any notes. If I was a part of the studio team, I don't think I'd have any notes for him. Yeah, it's perfect. It was, yeah. Did you watch it uh, subtitled or dubbed? Subtitled. I've tried dubs in the past, and it it throws it off for me. Um, it's offensive. Yeah. It makes me so it's mad. It, it feels <laughs> like cartoonish or something. Yeah. It seems like. I remember watching anime when I was a kid and the only way we could really get it was dubbed. And then when I watched mm -hmm. anime, when I'd grown up, I was like, man, why would you not want to hear them speaking Japanese? 
like the yeah. like the truest form, the way that it was meant to be viewed. And I think that a lot of people are just turned off by reading while they're watching things. I saw on Facebook a post about Squid Game, and then all the comments were like, "Oh." Actually, half the comments were, oh, it wasn't that great. The dubbing was horrible. And then the rest of the comments were, what are you doing watching this dubbed? That is probably like the biggest way to shoot yourself in the foot going into any kind of foreign film is watching it that way if you have an option to watch it with subtitles. Because I I like hearing the the native language. It's just so immersive. And then I also Mm -hmm. liked in Squid Game how they had English speakers as well. So it wasn't like, watching something like Chernobyl, which was amazing. But, you know, the way they, the way they kind of hashed out that everyone is speaking Russian was they had them all speak in English, but in a, in a, like a British accent for some reason. And that was, you know, that was the, uh, that was the trade off for, Oh yeah, this is, this is what it sounds like. If you speak Russian, how your mind translates, it sounds like people speaking English properly and with a British accent. So did you, um, did you find the the scenes with the Americans and the American speakers to have a sort of a different quality of dialogue and uh, I don't know writing or almost felt felt kind of hokey or cheesy in a way? Yeah, and it was kind of at first I was like, man, this is really weird. These guys, the way these guys are talking, but yeah. as it went on, it's it just it made everything that was happening with the English speakers seem way creepier. You know, it just seemed like like it added a surreal nature to all the things they were doing. And if you've seen the show, you know that they're some of the creepiest people in the whole show. Yeah. At first, I I wasn't sure if, like, they just kind of screwed up with the English speaking. But over time, I decided that I think it was intentional to make them, you know, like you're saying, look more, uh, well, everything that they were. And just just to, uh, I don't know make them seem more cartoony and, and ridiculous. I think, I think it may have been an intentional thing to have it come out that way. Yeah. Like you're saying about not having any notes for them. When I first started seeing those scenes, I was like, man, this is so strange. But as it went on, yeah. I wouldn't have changed that because yeah. that's it. It just adds, like you're saying, like that level of creepiness and that surreality that you kind of are expected to feel when those guys are on the screen. I bet there's a little bit of, uh, of it being just a commentary from their point of view uh, on on Americans. Yeah, how stupid we all are, how weird, mm-hmm. and bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was great. Highly recommend. I'm sure almost everyone has probably heard of or watched Squid Game at this point. How popular it is, but if you haven't, man, that is a uh, top notch recommendation from the Content Clearinghouse. You should definitely go and consume all nine episodes as soon as you can. Yes, yeah, that's, that's a three thumbs up. Indeed, the highest praise the show gives. All right, well, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll get into the content. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. All right, Nick, back in the deep end, buddy. You got some content for us today? I have some content. That is my job, I suppose. All right, uh, today... Uh, I won't start with any guessing games. Uh, I'm going to go a little deeper and a little more obscure, and I don't think we'd get there to play any of those kind of games. In fact, I'm going to break the rules that have been laid out in the Contentologist Credo just a little bit and not come All in right. with, a, with, with a serious angle on the content I'm covering, but uh, rather, I just want to bask in the ideas covered in the content itself and 
Still, I can I can take this risk because what are you going to fire me? Not yeah, like, until the end of the month. <laughs> well, I want to I want to roll around in these ideas and see if we can become a filthy couple of humans in a pile of unscripted dialogue. Oof, what I'm uh, right. what I'm going to talk about is while it is content, it's it's not something that would fit in the typical categories of content that we cover on the show. Uh, in a way, it's more akin to the CMDEs, um, the Cameo Matt Bateman uh, events that Brett covered so gracefully before. Some of um, my favorite stuff that's happened on the show has been content adjacent. So I'm really excited to hear this. Yeah. So there's this guy named Josha Bach or Yosha Bach or Bach, if you want to get super technical, uh, who's popped up on four of my regular podcasts now. Uh, those podcasts would be the Lex Friedman podcast that I like to promote every chance I get. Uh, he's been on that show a couple times now. The Jim Rutt Show, which he's also appeared on twice. Singularity FM, which is a very interesting podcast. He's been on there once. And the Future of Life Institute podcast. And uh, like most modern humans, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And to be able to get through them all in the short life we have, I have to typically listen to them at two speed or somewhere in that range based on who's talking. But when this guy is a guest on these shows, I have to actually drop back down to one speed. Not because it's hard to understand what he's saying specifically, but it's because the guy speaks in these mind-melting, reality-busting, nonstop uh, genius quotes. Or, or so I thought. Um, I, once I got a little deeper in my research, I realized maybe I just uh, had just grown fascinated with him. There, there's a little more filler in there. It's not all, not everything that he says is genius, but there, there's some pretty solid zingers he comes up with. Um, so what I'm going to cover today is not a podcast, but one man's appearances on at least 15 podcasts. Whoa. Uh, different shows. Like this yeah. idea. Yeah. So I... I know there are at least 15 podcasts because I found a Spotify playlist um, by a person named Catherine Wellburn um, that she compiled that is probably a nearly complete list of all his guest spots on podcasts. Uh, shout out to Catherine for that one. Uh, thank you for doing all the hard work. Uh, we'll put a link in the playlist to your, uh, or in the, in the show notes to your playlist. And uh, another side note on Catherine. I don't know if you use Spotify much or do playlists. I didn't even realize you could share playlists or you could find other people's playlists. Um, but once I realized, you know, this is just a random person, uh, I checked out the rest of her playlists and this is her highest rated playlist with 26 likes. Uh, I did browse <laughs> some of her music though, and I found her taste in music broad, playful, and quite delightful. Oh, so, um, how lovely. Yeah. yeah. Catherine Welburn. Thank you very much for that. My, my original goal was just to bring up some of those quotes and use those as uh, starting points for some good, heady conversation. Uh, I realized as I started listening and re-listening to some of these shows that without all the context kind of leading up to these quotes, they didn't have as powerful an effect uh, as they did on, on their own as they did, you know, you kind of been listening to the, the lead up. And uh, I'll still use some of the exact quotes and throw in some paraphrasing as we go through some of the stuff he talks about. Uh, and maybe, you know, fill in some of the context when it's needed. And also with a lot of his stuff, I, I didn't think about this at first, but um, a lot of it does require a bit of familiarity with some some concepts in AI, physics, uh, maths, and philosophy. That's kind of where he focuses his uh, 
this uh, brain exploding, brain exploding uh, mouth explosions. Let's cut that one. That's <laughs> <laughs> staying in, buddy. <laughs> oh man, that's fair. Anyways, I uh, I'm certain I won't do him justice. Uh, my hope is just that as we you know go through these little tidbits that we dive into here, uh, I can convince you and maybe a couple of our listeners to spend a month or two trying to get through these 30 hours of uh, mindfuckery that this guy puts out there in the world. I like it. like this idea. Yeah. So, again, the guy's name is Yosha Bach, J-O-S-C-H-A, uh, Bach. Uh, and he did say, I think I heard him say a couple of times, that he's distantly, rela- uh, distantly related to one Johann Sebastian Bach. Got some genius um, so, in the genealogy then. Yeah, that's what it seems like. He, uh, a little background on him. He has been called the leading AI philosopher of our time. I don't know who called him that and in what context, but one podcaster said that, so I'll just repeat that blindly. He was born <laughs> in 1973 in East Germany, where uh, he talks about this a lot. He grew up in a forest, as he described it. Uh, with an artistic and abnormally free-thinking parents for that part of the country at that, at that time. So he's in East Germany uh, uh, during the, basically the Cold War. Well, and, I imagine uh, that type of parent was hard to come by in that era. Yeah, he uh, said basically his dad, you know, and his mom, who his dad eventually found, were, were both exceptionally free-thinking for that region in that time, and he just, uh, his father just moved them out into the woods somewhere and just started building sculptures and architecture and building his own little kingdom. And he got to grow up in that. And essentially all he had was a book of, or, uh, a library of books. And he was kind of a nerd and, uh, just hung out and read and learned about the world. And that's kind of, you know, that's what put him on his path. He, uh, he has undergraduate degrees in computer science and philosophy, and he has a PhD in cognitive science. Um, but he eventually moved into AI research because he determined that the best way to try to understand the human mind, in his opinion, uh, was through trying to understand AI. So taking it, taking it from that angle, if we could figure out AI, then we probably have a pretty good grasp on our, our brains themselves. Now, is that because AI, like general AI would simulate a human mind? Like I... I've always been kind of under the impression that even like a generalized AI would not be simulating the way a human brain works, but more of like a, I don't know, maybe just like an all-encompassing logical perspective on the world. But I'm also, all of my knowledge of AI comes from movies, so I don't really know how it actually works. I would say he probably looks at it more as not, you know, figuring out an implementation of one general AI and, and, and learning from that. Uh, an implementation, more just using the research in the field and the different areas of study to as a tool to understand the mind itself. Because, um, yeah, I think a lot of people agree if we do get to some AGI level, general level artificial intelligence, it most likely won't function just like we do. Um, just because you our brain want evolved. it to. Yeah. I feel yeah, like. So, uh, I mean, Human mind is way too volatile and unpredictable for something that you would want to simulate. I feel like part of creating a true AI would be trying to logic your way out of a lot of the problems <laughs> that plague humanity. You know, just like our our brains are so prone to malfunction and, you know, it's 
it's not uncommon to hear like even someone you think of as well adjusted has all these mm-hmm. uh, these eccentricities and uh, like neuroticism associated like almost everyone does and people just kind of yeah. hide those things definitely don't want to program that into a computer i would imagine well uh just to play devil's advocate on that a little bit um you know humans aren't completely rational you might think that the best way to go about an ai is purely logic based and but there uh, we are also pretty um fault tolerant the way our brains are designed so we can handle a lot of errors and problems in our in our wiring and still be functional so maybe that is something that is maybe there's something that doesn't be part of a like a blow off valve yeah it's something to, to add a little chaos to mix and I don't know. Maybe, maybe sometimes logic is, uh, if you follow logic strictly, you could get into some kind of crazy loop and you need, need some kind of, I don't know, rationality break to free you up and get you out of that. I don't know. That's really interesting. Never thought about that. But yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, back to Yosha. I was going to wrap up a little bit more on him. There's, uh, so right now he is a, uh, well, he's been so he's been an AI researcher since he finished his PhD. He's uh, worked or researched at or been a scientist at places like the MIT Media Lab, the Harvard Program for Evolutionary Dynamics, and nice. currently fellow alumni. Yeah, that's right. Well, I want to throw another little tidbit about that little program here in a second that might change your mind on that <laughs> a little bit. But uh, he is currently the principal AI engineer in cognitive computing at Intel Labs. So he's, he's been around the block. He does pretty cool stuff. Um, and the little tidbit I was just uh, alluding to, and it's not pertinent to what I want to talk about today, but something I did learn while doing a little research on this that I did want to bring up, that Harvard program is now shut down because it was more or less completely funded by Jeffrey Epstein. Yikes. Oh, and man. You know what? I think I heard the same thing about the contentology program. That might be why there's only two official contentologists, and then we had to give you your degree. Oh, man, Harvard, you are walking a thin line here. Yeah, well, so I also then found out that Epstein had actually previously invested in another venture of Josh's several years earlier. And then I found out that a large percentage of some of my favorite research in the AI field was funded by Epstein, including the MIT Media Lab, the Harvard thing, a program called OpenCog run by another uh, AI superstar named Ben Gertzel. And he gave some money to the Santa Fe Institute of Complex System Science and Dr. Ian Malcolm fame of last episode. Well, so what do you think about um, having... I mean, Jeffrey Epstein was obviously a person with a lot of money that was investing all over the place. And yeah. uh, do you think that like having a monster like him behind the flow of money into these programs that like, compromise them in any way? I th- I feel like a lot of it is probably extremely impersonal. It's just places for him to funnel his money to avoid paying taxes or whatnot, whatever people with a lot of money do. No, I think you're right. Um, I actually read a little bit about... Um, I found a, uh, ask me anything at AMA with Ben Gertzel and somebody brought that up and he went into it and he was like, look, uh, most of us had no idea who he was, where this money was coming from. When, when you're trying to do this research, you pretty much take money from anywhere. You know, these people weren't hanging out with a the guy. Uh, they weren't on his private Island or none of that stuff. 
Except in a couple cases. That's actually why the Harvard school got shut down because that guy was actually pretty in tight with Jeffrey or the Harvard. Oh, program. that'll mess you up. That'll taint your yeah, reputation. Um, yeah, and I think there was a guy at the MIT Media Lab who was also um, in in a little too tight with uh, with old Mister Epstein. But anyways, I, like not I said, good. I don't want to get sidetracked on that. Yeah, that's not what uh, we really want to talk about. So Joshua, Joshua, Yosha is pretty soft spoken, but he speaks with a serious amount of confidence, almost as if he's certain that everything he says. Uh, is spot on that he has the whole world figured out. Yet sometimes he will throw in some humility just to keep you on your toes. From my point of view, uh, after listening to several, but not all of these episodes, because it's just too hard uh, to get through them at any kind of speed, uh, he, the way I see it, he has an uncanny ability to see the universe and systems in the universe at a higher level and at different angles, uh, better than anyone I've ever heard, and has the ability to reframe and boil down any topic into just a couple of mind-blowing sentences. And before I actually jump into some of his quotes and try to kick off some of our back and forth discussion about some of the topics he covers, I just want to read a quote from uh, the host of the Singularity FM podcast, uh, Nikola Denilov. I don't think I've ever heard him pronounce his last name. He's Russian. Uh, just to provide a little backup on what I'm claiming here. Uh, this is something he said about 30 minutes into his two-hour conversation with Joshua. I feel like I'm a goldfish and you're a human when we're talking, because I feel like that is the difference in intelligence between you and me, my friend. After interviewing 230 of the supposed smartest people out there, I have never had this feeling. Whoa. What a yeah. compliment and, uh, to a brain that is. Right. And Lex Friedman, uh, who's, like I said, interviewed him a couple times now, has several times during this conversation just has to stop and say, whoa. Um, so he's a... He's he's pretty good at making people's brains pop. Um, when I first thought about doing this piece of the show, uh, just like everything else I've done on the show, it was to force me to go deeper into something. And uh, in this case, the idea was to make myself finally listen to all 15 minutes of podcasts. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't get through all of them. That turned out to be a bit ambitious, uh, partially because of the, you know our busy travel schedule. Uh, mostly, it's really hard to listen to his podcast and try to pull out the specific quotes uh, because, uh, like I said before, there's a lot of context that has to go into it, but he's always kind of talking at this higher level and everything seems provocative, so you have to really listen. Uh, so, with all of that said and with information on Mr. Yosha himself, um, some of the topics we will dig in today are uh, AI and global warming, self Consciousness, suffering, living in a simulation, when the best time to be a human is slash was, and the age-old question, are all elephants autistic? <laughs> Those all sound very intriguing, actually. <laughs> yeah, so let's get conversating. Uh, we'll start uh, with AI and glo global warming. And here's a short quote on uh, the existential that's a hard word for a guy that mumbles a lot. I'm keeping it in. Oh my God, I didn't get it. Existential <laughs> threats. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not a hey, word. If you have a word you can't say, just shoot it over to me and I'll, uh, yeah, I'll be you your go. mouth. Thank you. I appreciate that. Unless, well, unless you take on this immortality we were talking about, and then I'm not going to be your mouth, buddy. That's all you. <laughs> hey, old. All right. I'm going to do it one more time. 
on the topics of the existential threats. That sounded like Trump when he was on that medication <laughs> posed by climate change and AI. <laughs> Boy, we got through that one. That was a good one. <laughs> How about we just get to the quote? Let's do that. It's a very short one and it needs a lot of explaining. Let's do it. Here's the quote. Without AI, we're dead for certain, I think. With AI, there's a probability we're dead. So, in your opinion, what would you wager to be the biggest risk, climate change or AI? Mm. I, well, I feel like both of them are such unknowns. Like, climate change, it's kind of like COVID. It's almost impossible to get an unbiased opinion on it. And uh, AI is, from what I've seen, mostly speculative at this point about where it could go. But uh, my sci-fi brain seems to lean more towards AI because I feel like with climate change, there's a good chance that humanity is going to do what humanity always does and engineer its way around the problem, maybe not out of it. But I feel Mm -hmm. like the very act of trying to engineer our way into and around AI may be what causes a big issue with it in the future. But also I'm a, I'm a layman on both of those topics. So I'm just going off of mostly sci-fi concepts for both day after tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, I think you're probably, uh, you probably represent, uh, with those opinions, a good portion of the population. Uh, Yosha is, you know, as an AI researcher, you might think his focus was on the AI side of things. But he's actually, like I said, he has a philosophy background. He's he's very well-rounded. He's very, very pessimistic pessimistic when it comes to climate change and uh, what he thinks it will do to our world. And, well, really, the human population. I don't think he's as concerned about the world or the ecosystem. You know, that's going to go on with or without us. Uh, from his point of view, looking at the trends and the data, uh, both sociologically and mathematically, uh, he, he thinks we've already reached the point of no return and that global warming is going to drastically disrupt the complex system we live in, uh, essentially killing a, a good bit of us through the lack of resources and the reduced habitable land um, that will come into the, the side effect of that. And then with the rest of us being wiped out in the subs- uh, subsequent wars and feuds until we get back down to three to 400 million in population. That's kind of where his thought lies on the, the situation. That seems highly what he, plausible. Yeah, and he he's very chipper, or not chipper, he's very nonchalant about talking about the fact that he's convinced this is kind of where things are going to go. But back to the quote, again, it was, without AI, we're dead for certain, I think. Uh, with AI, there's a prob- probability we're dead. So essentially what he's saying in this quote are, things are so bad, um, unless there's you know some sort of divine intervention, uh, we're totally screwed, and since there's no such thing as divine intervention... A true AI, something that is drastically smarter than us, is, is really the only option that can turn turn things around. Um, so that comes to you, what you're saying with the, you know, engineering our way out of it. Essentially, that is in a way engineering our way out of it. We just engineer our first true AGI, and then it it takes over from there. Put it um, in charge of the climate and all of the decisions for the planet. Yeah, more or less. Uh, that's kind of the thought around it. But, you know, the flip side is uh, in most AI takeoff scenarios. You ever heard that that term, AI takeoff? No. Is that like some uh, sort of emergence or something? Yeah. So there's there's a couple um, ways that 
uh, if we do get to a true AGI, that it could come about. Um, generally, they get lumped into a soft takeoff, where it's a sort of a gradual thing. Uh, we, you have something that's pretty good, and it gets a little bit better, it gets a little bit better. But it, it gets gradually introduced in society. Um, but most uh, most people think it'll be more of a what they would call a hard takeoff, where once you create the first one, essentially it's smart enough to make itself smarter. And that process will happen so fast um, that you know one day we don't have it, the next day it's you know it's basically taking over. It's like in Terminator, it takes it like seven minutes to decide to launch all the nukes. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. So, uh, yeah, just one more time on the quote, kind of bring it home. With AI, we're dead for certain, I think. Um, meaning, you know, he doesn't think we're going to get past uh, global warming, climate change without it, without it. And if we do get it, there's still a pretty good chance we're going to be dead anyway. But he, it's going to uh, kind of depend on the way the AI develops, I'm assuming. Like what, what its priorities are. Yeah, and I don't, I, I mean, we can go a little bit deeper into it. I don't. I do have uh, okay background in AI. I haven't been practicing. I did have a degree in it uh, a long time ago, but I haven't really used it. But I do try to keep up with it. And there's a couple of things that they generally talk about when it comes to trying to figure out if, if things are going to go that way or not. And one is the AI alignment problem. is what they call it. And the other is the AI control problem. So alignment means, you know, if this thing comes online, are its values aligned with humanity's ours? And how do Why we make would that? they be? Yeah, yeah. Would they be? How can we make that the case? And there's a lot of research behind that right now. The other one is the AI control problem. That is, you know, once it comes online, can we have any control over it? Um, and those are kind of the two big ways of looking at that. It seems like the scary thing about unleashing AI in the world is that it's powered by basically what we see as human essentials, which would be computing, electricity, connectivity, like all the, all the things that we have kind of come to see as their total luxury items from the world of 100 years ago, but to now they seem almost like basic human rights and it's hard to imagine the world functioning without them. And, and it's losing those things is essentially like what all apocalypse content yeah. fiction is about. And so it seems like humanity would have a really hard time making, you know, the choosing the nuclear option. If that's what it came down to of completely pulling the plug, because it would be mm -hmm. shutting down the entire infrastructure of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually, um, there's one thing he, so I noticed he talks about the same things a lot in the different podcasts. So that makes it a little bit easier and actually makes it helpful to uh, repetition to actually pick up on what he's saying on some of these things. One of the things you mentioned a lot was what he calls uh, closed cooling chains. So, uh, you know, a good portion of our population now on Earth lives in pretty hostile, hot environments already. Like there's, you know, three months of the year in Arizona where you basically can't go outside already. And so we live in these things called closed cooling chains. Essentially, we keep a cooling bubble around us wherever we go. So we get in the car and we're cool. We run into the store and we're cool. We go into our house and we're cool. And if we ever lose that, um, you know, in, in a particular environment, it becomes uninhabitable. And same as, for a cold uh, environment and be a closed heating chain, yeah. correct? Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. And well, no, I will uh, fight or uh, 
fight back a little bit on that. I think in the in a clo- uh, cold climate, you can always well dress for it. Yeah, I guess you could dress for it. But there's a point in a hot climate, um, which he talks about. What is it called? The wet bulb temperature, basically where the human body can no longer cool itself in any way, and you basically just you can't sweat. Sweating is useless at, at a certain point with a certain humidity and temperature. And there's nothing you can do unless you have some other artificial way to cool yourself. Um, there's no going back. You just, you just die. And I think in a cold environment, if, if you can have clothes at least or something, uh, you have a better chance. It's not guaranteed that you're done. I mean, that is why I would always rather be cold than hot because you really can prepare for being cold. But at a certain point, you can't do anything for heat. You're just, you're yeah. really, I guess, yeah, you really are at the mercy of technology at that point. Yep. And it doesn't flow exactly with what we're going here, but another quote of his I liked. It was, um, I think we are basically a species of grasshoppers that have turned into locusts. When you are in a locust mode, you see an amazing rise of population numbers and the complexity of interactions between individuals. Only your dog shows up. Yeah. Shakes Classic podcasting. Yeah. But ultimately, the question is is it sustainable? Um, and on that note, let's move on to mark that. I don't know what I'm going with that. End of that sentence, and then I'll go on to that. Wow, what are you doing over here? You just like Kool Aid manned the barrier. Okay, so what was the last thing you were talking about? Uh, the last, where, where do you want to come back in? Because you, uh, after the, so you could just, uh, you just dropped again, his quote. Yeah, you just dropped his yeah. quote. So you could just do the quote again. Yeah, maybe just quote. go back and mind? start with the quote. Yeah, I'll do that. Is it okay if we just wait like a couple minutes? So Miles apparently wants to go outside, but have yeah. to take him out real quick. Yeah. So let's do. So I would say go back to the part where he said it doesn't doesn't really segue with what we were talking about but the next quote is like that's where i would bring it back in yeah and you can uh turn that into whatever the next point is actually you know what i can skip that because the next point actually fits better uh, it goes into more about what he thinks the good and bad of ai might be so we'll do that so you could just say like segueing that segues yeah. to the next quote yep 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 so let's let miles go for the tinkle all right. This is really interesting, by the way. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I like it. We're at Golden now, so we're at the bottom of the mountains. What is that behind you out the window? I, the window there, I was seeing like a light earlier, and it looked like smoke was blowing past it, but now there's no light out there anymore. Oh, the, I don't know. The, I don't think you can have the campfires at this campground. It could have been that's, that would have been my guess, but it would look like the moon with like clouds or smoke or something. But now it's gone, so I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the moon. I guess the oh, moon does move. Yeah, no, it's the moon. And there's a tree yeah. between the moon and uh, the tree. Oh yeah, okay. I mean, a tree in the moon and a little bit. It's like yeah. Violet would definitely howl at the moon if she saw that. <laughs> I could totally see that. That girl's hilarious. Oh Ooh, man, imagination. So cute. Yeah. By the way, I did check, and Heather is a robot. 
Oh, good to know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Heather, you missed the best part of the party last night. (laughs) All right, you ready? Yeah, let me let them close the separator. How psychotic do you feel doing a podcast with her in the next room where she can hear you? Pretty psychotic. I think the fact that I have like earbuds in that block all other sound makes me feel like I'm isolated. It's important. Yeah, but every now and then I'm like, oh yeah, she probably heard what I just said. Totally. Don't worry. Girlfriends and wives don't listen to this except for Bree. She just told me she wasn't paying But to know when to say that, that meant she was paying attention. Totally. It's a. Okay. Okay. <laughs> did you tell her about the testing process? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I had to actually have her put on a dress at first. Oh, it. she, it's the only way to be sure. Take off, right, nuke the site ready? from orbit. All right. All right. Uh, Hold on, let me Okay. So talk a little bit more, um, since he is an AI researcher, about his kind of thoughts on the good and bad of AI. I didn't have any really good quotes. Uh, this is where I'm just more paraphrasing and kind of the way he normally talks about things. Uh, as far as, you know, AI being a good thing that saves us, you know, in the climate side or other things, uh, the way he sees it as, is, is, you know, we live in a very exponential world and things are changing so rapidly and it doesn't feel like we found, found the appropriate governance model yet, kind of manage this type of growth and this, how, you know, how technology is changing and how everything's changing, culture is changing and, that's where he sees AI at least having a chance to come in and, you know, assuming it is, I mean, it would be if it's, if it's a true AGI and it, it does a rapid takeoff kind of thing, smart enough to kind of really see the big picture and see what we really need to do to kind of rein ourselves in and keep this sustainable and not run this thing off the tracks. Um, and as far as the threat of AI, he has an interesting, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways AI could go wrong and, and wipe us out or in theory. I mean, everything's in theory, right? Uh, in fact, have you ever heard of the, uh, what's it called? Um, paperclip? Uh, I don't know what it's called, but it's, it's like the paperclip theory of wiping out humanity. Have you ever heard that or something like that? Yeah, like if you put a if you put an AI in charge of making paperclips the most efficient way that it would eventually mm-hmm. just repurpose everything on Earth and all the resources to create paper clips and you have just like a barren planet covered in paper clips that were being yeah. highly efficiently produced. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's an, a, a toy example of how things get to go wrong, but there, I mean, there is some truth behind that, that, and that comes back to the, uh, AI alignment problem. I mean, most serious researchers think that if we did create, I, uh, create AI, it would have enough common sense to realize that that's not what we wanted but, you know, like I said, that's a toy example. Uh, you know, most people in the general public, and this comes a lot from the sci-fi stuff, uh, would probably think about, you know, autonomous weapons, robots, that kind of Terminator-style takeover. Um, 
his take on what probably would be the most likely and effective way would be if we unleashed an AGI on the stock market. Um, he said it, it will realize that you know there, there are only 8 billion of us with brief lives. And to go back to quoting him, this thing is going to kill the shit out of us. There's no way we can outsmart this thing. The only way the economy can survive is if this AI has been cleverly, cleverly set up in a way such that it is the entire economy and it becomes the economy. So what he's saying there is, you know, if we unleash an AGI on the stock market, it could game the crap out of it, figure out how to manipulate humans, wipe us out, paperclip style, just, you know, go to the extreme. But if we can set it up so that it its goal essentially is to be the economy, take over the economy for us, then maybe, uh, maybe we have a chance that way. But, he, but he, yeah, so his, his fear... Yeah, there's a dog again. Uh, his fear is not so much the uh, the more common uh, AI takeover scenarios. It's just something as simple as put it on the stock market. Uh, Isn't that the way that it always works? Like, there's always like the the sexy movie version of something that involves nukes, and then there's the real world version of it that's basically just steeped in mundanity. You know. It, it's just as dangerous if something were to crash the entire economy of the world, but that's not as, that's not as visually appealing as seeing like robots flying around killing everyone. But I think, I think that even if you had an AI that was in charge of the governing the world and it was, it was essentially like put in charge of the human race and it was tasked with saving the planet. I think that, that would also that that could be some sort of apocalypse scenario for humans because like what you said earlier it's not about whether the planet survives because the planet is always going to be here and there will always be some sort of life sustaining ability but it's really about what happens to humans and what an ai might do in an attempt to save humanity as a whole is make decisions that do not have the interest of mass majority of the humans on the planet in mind like you said that number of you know three to four hundred million people would is like the the sustainable working number that bach has proposed and uh it it makes a lot of sense to me that an ai would kind of come to that same conclusion and so it might seem like a really horrifying thing but then you know 100 200 years down the line the people that get to exist then would probably appreciate that because otherwise the planet would have 20 million or 20 billion people on it and no resources. And it, you know, it would basically just be a, a dusty Wally esque husk of a planet at that point. Yeah. And having a terrible thought right now, what if, what if this AI was into the same kind of show as we are? And it's like, Let's just do a planet-wide scale squid game, and that was just, that's just what he came up with. Then. You know, reduce our numbers to something more sustainable. That's a hellscape right there. That's horrifying, and I imagine a an AI could come up with some extremely mentally debilitating games and ways to pit humans against each other. It seems like uh, maybe all that 
all that computing, it might be getting a little bored and trying to find some way to entertain itself with the hairless monkeys that live on this planet. Right. I don't know. And second thought, though, I feel like it would really wouldn't care about all the, the awful, torturous kind of points of that. And I think it would probably, you know, I think it would probably just try to do something really fast. Autoclave the planet. Yeah, something like that. Well, I think we've gone deep and dark enough on the AI topic. Let's uh, let's jump over to another kind of section he talks about a lot, or topic, or field. And that's uh, on the self and consciousness. Have you ever thought about what it is, what you are, what is what is the self? Have you ever thought about that? Tried to put that into mouth words? Hmm. I don't know. I guess I always thought, kind of thought of myself as my awareness. I mean, they call it self-awareness. And I've mm-hmm. always thought about who I am is kind of the way I perceive the world around me and the, the way I perceive my own inner being. But it's uh, beyond that very basic explanation that I just came up with right now. No, I haven't really thought <laughs> about that specifically. Yeah, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's something we're programmed to really think about too much. I think it's something you have to go on a journey to start trying to answer. It's he, so uh, nebulous too because it's all. I feel like yourself is always changing. You know, if you're interested in in personal growth, which I don't know, maybe some people aren't, but I feel like myself. Yeah. If I were to, if I were to come across myself from. 20 years ago, whoo, I don't think we would get along, buddy. I think I would have a lot of problems with that guy. Yeah, I would agree there. I've definitely evolved. In well, he, uh, Yosha, talks about a lot. I mean, obviously, his background was uh, cognitive science, and this is really what he's doing this for, is trying to figure out the mind. And he talks about Talks about it from the angle of trying to identify where where does the self reside, essentially. And I think I mean, similar to the path you were on, he talks about it in a more concrete way. Um, one of the, one of his quotes is, uh, "We are stories in the movie the brain is creating. We are characters in that movie, and that movie is a complete simulation. It's a VR that is integrated into the neocortex, and you and me, the selves, are characters in this VR." Uh, and more simply, he said it this way: We live in a simulation, but the simulation is our mind. I'm liking that, man. That is very intuitive. It's like it's like asking the question, you know, what is free will, or do we have free will? Uh, I think half of the discussion around that is arguing, what do you mean by free will? And I, I think the same thing could be applied to the self. What do you mean by the self? what you're trying to actually define there. Um, but yeah, so he, he often talks about this, uh, this type of simulation as opposed to like, you know, the matrix kind of simulation or the simulation argument that Nick Bostrom discusses. He really likes to use uh, the, the, the fact that the, essentially our reality, what we experience is just uh, a model that our brain puts together of what's really going on in the world. We don't have actual contact, the physical, the, the underlying substrate of the universe. We have a bunch of senses that come in and get basically turned into a VR kind of simulation 
and we ourselves, our minds, we exist within that simulation. Who we are and our identity is just just a character, except it's a character we really care about because it's a character we have some control over uh, being ourselves. And, and, and to some degree, the people that we're closer to. And I don't know if that takes away from uh, life or living or uh, thinking about what it means to be alive or something. But I don't know. I, I tend to agree with him on that as well. I think that is a good way of putting it. And it doesn't kind of like me and my determinism. I, I believe, he, well, he, I did have a, there was an interview where he was asked if he's a determinist. And he kind of skirted the question in, in the kind of way that we were just talking about, we're trying, you know, talking about the semantics of the question, you know, what do you mean specifically about determinism? I would say he's probably determinist, and in the same kind of light, um, you know, believing everything in the clockwork, and also believing that you know, I'm just a story that my mind has made up to keep my body moving around. Doesn't it really affect me day to day? I don't know, does that do anything to you? Does that take you on the same path as determinism? I mean, if it like that? if it is, if myself is a story, my brain is telling me just to keep me moving, I'm okay with that because I think it is extremely fascinating that our mind is even capable of acknowledging that in the first place. And I don't know about you, but honestly, I love being me. I can't imagine being yeah. anything else. And uh, right. e even with all the neuroticisms associated with that, but I, I, it's the same way that I don't mind sinking hours into a video game, even though there's no tangible benefit to my life other than just to entertain myself. So if that is a function of our brains, I think that is just as interesting as if, you know, what m most people might assume that you're just interacting with the physical world and you have this higher level of consciousness higher than anything else on the planet that we know of, except for maybe dolphins. And uh, I, th I think both of those are extremely fascinating models for the world. But you you were talking about how our brains, the, the senses that our brains process are, are simulating the world around us. I think like a really good visual reference of that is, have you ever seen, I remember seeing this in, uh, in school. It was like a, a diagram of how our eyes, how the lenses in our eyes perceive the world and it would show like the the raw image of whatever the world is. It is usually like a tree or something, and it's upside down. And then it comes in through our eyes and it flips it over. And I always thought, so does that mean that everything is actually upside down <laughs> and that I'm just perceiving it the other way around? Because if I am, it doesn't actually matter at all. Because right. the only thing that matters is that I'm perceiving it one way and I can interact with it that way. So it doesn't matter if it's upside down or not. And it's kind of like when I'm training people to fly, you know, like when you're, mm -hmm. when you're flying, there's, there's multiple orientations, you know, head up and head down are two very basic positions in skydiving. And a lot of people, when they're learning to fly head down, you know, you can see like wires getting crossed, people like getting confused about what's left and what's right and what's up and what's down. And what I always tell people is, it doesn't matter. It, do, it doesn't matter the way that you're seeing the outside world. What only matters is mm -hmm. your internal perspective, 
you are right side up. Everything else is upside down. But that doesn't change which direction right and left and up and down is because that's all relative to you. And right. I think that that's a, a very likely scenario that all of our senses are kind of playing those kind of tricks on our on our self, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, to your point with the head down flying, so when Heather and I were ending our or right before we stopped going to the tunnel, we were both just starting to stick head down a little bit. And yeah, I was, uh, it's very disorientating uh, once you get that way. Cause I guess humans aren't really built to be upside down and function. Um, but yeah, the brain had a hard time wrapping itself around that in the beginning for sure. Yeah. That's a big part of training someone to fly like that is to let go of your attachment to the way the outside world is. And just perceive it from, you know, the cockpit of your own mind. And it's, you know, when you're upside down, it feels like towards your head is up and towards your feet is down and left and right are still the same. As long as you just associate, uh, you know, your, your own internal direction mechanism, you know, you Mm -hmm. can separate that from the fact that like in the tunnel, you're looking out and you see people sitting on the bench, but they're, you know, they're hanging upside down essentially from the world. As long as you can separate those two things, then all of a sudden it just starts to make sense because then it's just like walking, you know, you just lean forward to go forward, lean back to go back, turn left, turn right. It's all the exact same as if you're walking and it doesn't matter the way the people on the bench look. And that's a, that that's usually a really big breakthrough when people feel that because all of a Mm -hmm. sudden they realize they're holding on to like this construct that doesn't have any, doesn't have any bearing on the actual physical feat that they're performing, which is basically just balancing on the wind. It's the same thing that they've been doing for hours and hours leading up to that point. Right. Yep. Yeah. That was, uh, that was tough. I will say, but yeah, I think we started to, I think we were both starting to, to, to rewire our brains to kind of, grasp that a little better right before right before everybody left Denver. But there's a reason why you don't learn that first because it's difficult to balance and you also do have to rewire your brain more than any other type of flying that there is. Everything else translates pretty one to one over just the way we normally look at the world. But when you're flying upside down, you really do have to have like a, a paradigm shift in the way that you interact with the stimuli that you're getting. Well, how about I throw you another softball question? Like, what is self? No, that was what, a softball. Uh, yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> uh, in the same vein and, and going down the same path. Um, and it might be the same question, really. But um, would you define consciousness differently? How Have you ever thought about how to define consciousness? I've always thought of consciousness as the ability to perceive the self. That's kind of what I've always thought of is like the ability to realize that I am a thing and I'm different than other things. And that I might actually be elevated above a a lot of the other life forms on the planet. Like I, I think that's kind of a hallmark of consciousness is being able to understand, I guess, mortality, understanding mortality is part of it. And also realizing that the way that you sense things and the way that you can rationalize and 
talk yourself into and out of things is something that a lot of creatures don't do. You know, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's operating above a, a base level of instinct, I think. Yeah. Self-awareness essentially. Uh, yeah. Like you can't, I don't think you can really extricate consciousness and self from each other. I think they're, I think they are intertwined. Right. 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 That's what I was thinking. You know, maybe it is the same question. Because self I is thought, kind of a product of consciousness, I believe. Because like you said, self is, it's like a story that we tell ourselves and you can't do that without being conscious. At least right. I don't think so. I think I'm a lot smarter than a deer, but who knows? <laughs> right. Well, I uh, thought you might spit out this exact same quote that Yoshi did, but this is, I mean, so, all right. And, all reality, yes. He he generally talks about the fact that consciousness really is um, an att- our attention mechanism. It's it's our everything being processed in our brain, boiling down to figuring out what we need to put our attention on, and that includes and and or requires you know models of the world, including ourselves. But he he really focuses focuses uh, mostly on the fact that it's it's our attention mechanism. However. Uh, he has this great little quote that I think I've heard him say it twice or something like it. Uh, as far as what consciousness is, uh, we're basically like a little monkey sitting on the top of an elephant and we can prod this elephant here and there, go this way or that way. And we might have the illusion that we are the elephant and that we are telling it what to do. And sometimes we notice that it walks in a completely different direction. So basically you're saying we're the, our consciousness is the little monkey on the elephant that is the rest of our being body in our mind so as much as we think we're in control of this whole thing uh we're just kind of tapping and prodding and and trying to get it to go where we need it to it by it i mean our body and our life um as best we can but really we're just uh no more than the little monkeys that don't pop of an elephant that seems like it fits very well into your determinism view of the world as well, which I'm not sure that I buy completely into. <laughs> not to go off the, or take us off the track completely. Um, just to, to add a little bit to the determinism thing. If, if the world, if the universe is not deterministic, meaning that everything's just following the laws of physics like clockwork, um, and everything can only happen one way because that's the only way it can be processed, essentially. What is the alternative? Um, there's only two alternatives that I can think of. One would be that there is some randomness in the world. Um, so uh, you, you, you don't know. At that point, you couldn't, if you had the source code to the universe, you couldn't know where it's going to go because there's randomness in it. Whereas if you had the source code to a deterministic universe, if you had that all, you could just play it all out and see you know, what was going to happen. Um, and the other alternative is some kind of mystical higher thing or uh, something non-materialistic outside the realm of physics that uh, that is more uh, you know, well, mystical, I guess. Well, I think that it's uh, there's almost certainly a lot of things we don't understand. I don't know um, if I buy into the mystical angle, but I think that I don't think that there's anything 
unbelievable about the universe being random, but also I just had this thought about determinism that it seems like on a macro scale, determinism does make a lot of sense because, you know, when you look at galaxy formation and the way that stars lifespans and the way they, you know, they accrue material that becomes planets, the, all of that is, you know, it's, it's pretty much happening across the board everywhere, everywhere that we've studied, we see the same, same process is happening, but where I feel like this might be the, just the egotistical humanity in me talking, but I feel like where a deterministic model breaks down is when you get to a conscious being, because it's like almost by design, our entire, our entire way that we interact with the world is by choice. And an animal or creature that's acting on instinct probably isn't acting on the option of choosing more than like one or two things at any point. You know, it's like where like, like fight or flight is a common statement because that's kind of a, that's kind of like a, a binary choice that you would see in something like a deer. And uh, with, with humans, they're so unpredictable. You never know really what you're going to get. And it's, it's really hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that whatever random choice a human comes up with in any given scenario was predetermined by, you know, the, the way the universe expanded during the big bang, you know, the way that the molecules were all shot out of the initial event, it resulted in, you know, some Mm -hmm. crazy person who maybe had like a great upbringing with great parents and, you know, a stable home life. And then eventually they get into some sort of hard drugs and end up living on the street or, you know, dying homeless or something, you know, that it seems like that those are the kind of choices that you would only get from chaos and randomness. Yeah. Uh, I guess one way to try to look at it is, so you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, I don't call them lesser, but uh, perhaps less sentient beings uh, like deer or something like that, mostly operating on instinct. At what point in the complexity of biology do we go past, you know, so you start up, you know, with planets and basically following the formula that forms planets and everything like that. Then biology comes up on planets. And we have uh, lower life forms that, that run on seemingly instinct. At what point do we cross some kind of threshold where, it no longer is just the clockwork determinism, even at a biological level, that we go into choice. Like, where does that line happen? Is, would that be in the... Where would that live? Would that be a, a, uh, an aspect of the human brain that brings that about? Or, see, that for me, that's where um, I had the hardest time deciding that, yeah, no... Even even at the human brain level, and even um, though it feels like we're making these choices, there's so much complexity invo- involved behind the scenes of my consciousness uh, leading up to these. what I feel like is a choice. Um, I still decide it's, it's just chemical processes, which are just physics, which are just uh, the laws of the universe playing out. Well, I feel like if I had to put a point on it, I would say that line is where you introduce self into the equation, because that's when, I mean, even when humans make a decision, I know with me, like 
so many decisions I make waffle back and forth, you know, with so many options that I could have gone with. And then sometimes the options are just kind of like, you know, if I woke up feeling a certain way that day, it might skew my decision. But I guess you could make the same argument that you woke up feeling that way because of the clockwork universe. But, but I, you know, I feel like the, I feel like the clockwork universe model works very well at the macro scale, the, the place where it really breaks down for me. It, it really is like the delineation is when you introduce consciousness and self into it, which is interesting. Cause that's like what this entire conversation is about. Yeah. I think that's uh, the way we are kind of laying out. There's a pretty common um, way. A, a lot of people think about it when they kind of pose that question. Um mm-hmm. And I mean, it's something I struggled with. I don't know. Well, maybe I struggle with, but it's just thought a lot about. And, you know, I, I ended up deciding, like I said, eh, it's all this. Uh, it's just, uh, I think it comes back to what my eyes open, opening to the uh, complex system science kind of point of view. It's just, uh, it's, it's, the system is so complex and so, uh, so many pieces. Like we have what a hundred billion neurons in the brain, and then like a trillion synapses connecting them. Um, is there's just so much going on there, uh, so much processing, and as a conscious being, I'm only skimming the surface of what's really happening. I'm only getting a very small picture of it. This this simulation of what we're getting, um, because there's no way you could really consciously, I guess, experience all 100 billion neurons and synapses firing and, and see Unless that Unless you had so, NZT from Limitless. Then you can use all of your brain. Oh, oh is that... Uh, I never saw that. Was that the premise that, like, uh, humans only use 10% of their brain, but... Totally. This yeah. Yeah, okay. Nice. It's great. Yeah, I missed that. What it gets it? a CCH yeah. three thumbs up in my book. And I bet Brett would okay. back me up on that. I have to check that out then. Well, like I said, uh, or not like I said, like I was trying to say, let's not get derailed on determinism. So I'm going to bring us back a little bit because uh, I think we could probably, like I said, this is the first time I talked about it, do a full episode or two or three or a whole series on that. And we are just a couple of hairless eights who are mostly making up stuff as we go. I don't want to speak from you, but that's essentially what I'm doing here. Oh, yeah. That's my entire game plan. But I do have one more question about determinism before we move on. Okay. Yeah. Do you feel like since you, since you, uh, I guess, settled on the deterministic model as the one that makes the most sense to you, do you feel like that is easier for you than if you were just going through life, like before you found determinism, before, you know, just going through life assuming that it was chaos and random choice? Do you feel like it, it's like a little bit liberating viewing the world in that way? So... I'm glad you kind of brought that up. Um, there was a second level kind of realization I had. Um, and for the longest time, I wanted to write a movie about a guy who proved that the world was the universe is deterministic, only to find out that actually there is randomness, like later on. And then I had the realization, and I added this to the end of the movie, that they're actually, as far as the idea of free will, it doesn't matter if the world's deterministic or random. Because uh, either scenario takes away my say. Uh, my, yeah. 
in having any actual free will. Um, it, it was either the clockwork universe or it was some random bit for the thing. And that's how my choices came about. And though it feels like, you know, as a human being, as a conscious being, I, uh, I made that. So, you know, uh, yeah, I eventually realized that, like I said, after, after I decided, yeah, determinism is probably what it is. And I thought about, oh, what if it is actually there's some randomness in the world? And yeah, but ultimately I think it doesn't make a difference. Oh man. So it's all, <laughs> it's all academic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a deep rabbit hole. Um, there's endless opinions on it. Uh, and I don't think, I don't think it's anything that'll ever be answered or decided or all of humanity will agree on by any means. But it's, uh, it's fun to think about. And I think, um, I think it's pretty special that we are, at least as far as we know, the only beings in the universe, uh, who can actually contemplate that and realize these kind of things. So, what I mean, a gift and a curse even, that is. Right. But yeah, I think it's, uh, even if it does seem to make life real colder, and, um, I think it also gives you some, uh, some really neat things to think about. I, uh, I'm going to try to reel us back in here. I'm going to skip a little bit of the things I was going to talk about. So we kind of got to go a little long. I'm going to throw two quotes out and we're just going to not talk about them. I just like them and we're going to move on to kind of suppose this stuff. Um, one quote. Well, it kind of comes to this a little bit. It almost fits. Um, I was gonna, he talks a good bit about what, what is pain? What is suffering? What is, uh, you know, what, what is that in the mind? What role does it play? And like I said, we're not going to dig into that. But yeah, he has a quote I like. Was, uh, when life feels unbearable, I remind myself that I'm not a person. I'm a piece of software running on a brain of a random ape for a few decades. It's not the worst brain to run on. And another quote, uh, completely out of context that I really like, is happiness is a cookie that the brain bakes itself. Oh, man. You know, that reminds me of, I can't not comment. But uh, that that reminds me of, like something I used to tell myself when I was a kid when things were like always rough. I would always just I would always just say this too shall pass in my brain. Right. And it's crazy how powerful something like that is because humans are so I don't know if future oriented is the word, but it seems like we're so not presently oriented. Humans are yeah. almost always obsessed with the past or the future. And that's such a that's such a powerful trick you can play in your brain by just convincing yourself that like no matter how bad it is that at some point at least this problem will go away. Either you're gonna die or this problem will go away. And that is like a really powerful yeah. tool of a human mind. And that's I mean, I'd imagine when, you know, like Navy SEALs or whatever and they're doing like this intense crazy training where it's like no human body should be able to sustain that kind of effort you know it's just they're just like pushing through assuming that at some point you'll get to rest and you'll get to eat and it'll get it'll get all better and then eventually whatever the worst thing is that you can imagine at some point it's just like either it becomes a joke in your mind or it's just like such a distant memory that you know it's maybe like a little bit of mental scar tissue that your that your decision making kind of works around but for the most part like unless it kills you it really does eventually becoming like becomes yeah. inconsequential. Yeah. I mean, uh, actually to kind of 
summarize the way he kind of thoughts about it, uh, pain and, and suffering is just a, a, a teaching signal your brain is using, uh, you know, to try to improve its performance. So it gives you this feeling, these feelings based on the, you know, your current scenario, um, you know, the regulation uh, of your world is, is out of whack and it, it uses pain, like I said, it's a signal and it keeps that going until you figure out that, um, well, that's not helping anymore. Or the brain figures out that it's not helping anymore and, and you move on. And that's essentially all it is. And if you can realize that, then you can have a much better control over your own pain and suffering. I mean, not that you can just coldly shake off anything, but once you realize, you know, this is just my brain trying to tell me I don't like the situation, uh, you can kind of step back a little bit and say, hey, maybe I don't have to feel quite as bad. You know, obviously that doesn't apply to like physical pain. Physical pain, you just got to fix that shit. <laughs> as a person with a bad back, I can attest to that being true. Yeah, All right. There are a couple things to try to really wrap it up here. The one I didn't want to skip is uh, totally out of left field, I think, compared to the rest of them. It's something kind of funny I thought he brought up. I don't even remember why he was bringing this up. I think it's something that came up in conversation on. Um, well, I'll, ask you, I'll ask you this question. Have you ever thought about why animals uh, with bigger brains than us, like uh, whales and elephants, are not smarter than us? Doesn't have something to do with uh, brain size to body mass ratio and energy use. I mean, I've heard the theory like that, but I don't know. Not a biologist, contentologist. Yeah, yeah, no biologist here either. Um, I think he was just kind of on a lark picking this up, but uh, somehow that kind of came up. They were talking, uh, it was a Jim Rudd show, and they were talking about uh, somehow they got to the, whatever, why are, why are they not smarter with their bigger brains? And what he spit out was um, not that they need a, a proportionally larger cortex to control a proportionally larger muscle, so, you know, the brain. The brain's not bigger because there's more muscles or whatever control. Um, that is true for the body map, but only a very small part of the brain is the somatosensory cortex. So what do they do with all this extra capacity? The you know, brain's bigger. What is it, why is it actually bigger? Uh, he says, why is it that they are not smart? And I suspect that if you make a system too smart, it's uh, very hard to control it. It could be that the elephants have, that all elephants have massive, massive autism because the not autistic elephants meditated themselves out of existence they basically <laughs> oh, started to understand their role in the universe like very smart monks and then as a result of that decided that doing office politics all day and having kids and participating in society is just not cutting it and instead they just go do something more interesting with their lives like meditate and these meditating elephants uh didn't have a lot of offspring so all that we were left with were the autistic elephants it's like the idiocracy of the elephant world. It is yeah, the I exact plot of that backwards. film. Yeah. <laughs> and also that, I mean, that has like parallels with humanity too. It's that is why I am convinced humans are obsessed with apocalypse fiction because thinking about like going back to such a, like a base way of living seems so appealing because things like office politics and like, trying to like work around people's feelings. All that seems 
when you really get down to it, like it could be just such a waste of time. You know, like there's, there's so many things you could be doing, but you're all, you know, you're worrying about tiptoeing around all the other humans around you. And I guess that's kind of a really sociopathic way to look at the world. But that, I think that is something that's appealing to almost every human that's ever lived. Just a world where you don't have to do any of that. Right. Right. And you know, maybe that's, maybe the elephants at one point were that smart. And they, um, all the smart ones, like you said, just realized, screw this. We're going to go off and do our own thing. But it doesn't make enough of them smart elephants. Yeah, that, that. Or those autistic ones. I'm not sure why he used autistic there. I guess maybe that was that was his particular term for the remaining elephants. Elephants are pretty good at painting. They can they got that. It's true. All right, I'm gonna close with one more question. Um, I stole this from Lex Freeman. Uh, he, he often asked this in his interviews. Which, by the way, with that last reference. Uh, Lex Friedman is now the most mentioned man on this podcast, bumping Yuval Noah Harari to second place. Did Take you count breath. it? <laughs> did uh, you yeah, let's, 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 let's just say yeah. Let's <laughs> okay. say I did. <laughs> All right. Josh, what is the meaning of life? Uh, experiences. I like it. Short and sleep. I, um, I, my every time I think about this, I come back to that whole thing with semantics again. You know, what are what are you actually asking when you ask what is the meaning of life? If you're asking in a, like a strict technical manner, I don't think there is you know any meaning to life. There's no that would that would go back to like you know is there a reason we're here kind of thing. Um, I don't I don't see anything like that. Um, I'll give you uh, Yosha's response. It's nothing mind-blowing or anything but it kind of i think it kind of wraps up to me about what i think what i think about it i don't think there's a single answer for this nothing makes sense unless uh mind makes it so um, you basically have to project a purpose and if you zoom out far enough there's the heat death of the universe and everything is meaningless everything is just a blip in between and the question is do you find meaning in this blip between do you find meaning in, in observing squirrels you find meaning in raising children and projecting multi-generation organisms into the future? you find meaning in projecting an aesthetic of the world you like into the future and trying to observe that aesthetic? And if you do, uh, life has that meaning. And if you don't, then it doesn't. That wraps it up. Well, those are all experiences. Yeah, I've always thought about the meaning of life as extremely personal and the fact that we can even conceptualize that is it probably means that on our scale of a meaning of life, a human scale, the only creatures that can even think about that are humans. And, uh, you know, like the idea of collecting experiences, that's always been my personal meaning because that's, those are the things that brought me the most joy and wrestling with a mind that's, you know, so capable of like perceiving its own self and, I've mentioned it already, but all the neuroticism that that brings, mm-hmm. you know, brings to the table, it really does, for me personally, seem like the meaning is to collect experiences that make you happy and give you good memories, especially since we are focused on the past and the future, gives you things to look forward to. And yeah, it's, 
ultimately that, that meaning is really going to, it's going to be all boiled down to in your last moments and whether you feel like you wasted your time in this rare, this extremely unlikely Mm -hmm. perceptive mind and body that we all have. And for me, that's what it, I mean, that's what it is. It's just to make the most of every moment that I'm alive. And it doesn't, that doesn't have any bearing on the world really. But to me, that's, that's what it's all about. And I think that if you're doing that, you, you probably bring people that are like-minded in your life and you bring joy to them and they bring joy to you. And it just becomes like this, this exponential explosion of happiness and enjoyment. So I'm completely fine with that take on it for me personally. Yep. I would agree hundred percent. I think you put it perfectly. Uh, only thing I would add, I do like what uh, Lex uh, Freeman added at the end of the, their conversation. And it, uh, he does find, and I agree, find some joy in uh, making this blip being as weird as possible. On top of all that other good stuff. Man, that's great. Wow. This may be the deepest conversation we've ever had on this show. <laughs> and uh, I'm usually on this show with Brett, who brings the deepness. So thank you for that. That was awesome. This is giving me a lot of stuff to think about. And uh, honestly, you know, Brett messaged us today and said that he just listened to his first episode as a listener and not as a creator. So I'm excited to hear his thoughts on this after he, uh, after we released the, the show. So thank you for making me think about things that I may have never even uh, conceptualized on my own. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Content Clearinghouse. We truly appreciate that. You can email us if you have any thoughts on any of this. Email us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. Check out our Discord, which is in the uh, show notes. And thanks, everybody. We'll be back here next week jamming more highly cerebral content into your ear holes.